Chapter 2 of Capital, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production Volume 1 by Karl Marx Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling and edited by Frederick Engels Part 1. Commodities of Money Chapter 2. Exchange It is plain that commodities cannot go to market and make exchanges of their own account. We must, therefore, have recourse to their guardians, who are also their owners. Commodities are things, and therefore without power of resistance against man. If they are wanting in docility, he can use force. In other words, he can take possession of them. Footnote 1 In the twelfth century, so renowned for its piety, they included amongst commodities some very delicate things. Thus a French poet of the period enumerates amongst the goods to be found in the market of Landy, not only clothing, shoes, leather, agricultural implements, etc., but also femme folle de leur corps. End of footnote. In order that these objects may enter into relation with each other as commodities, their guardians must place themselves in relation to one another as person whose will resides in those objects, and must behave in such a way that each does not appropriate the commodity of the other, and part with his own, except by means of an act done by mutual consent. They must, therefore, mutually recognise in each other the rights of private proprietors. This juridical relation, which thus expresses itself in a contract, whether such contract be part of a developed legal system or not, is a relation between two wills, and is but the reflex of the real economic relation between the two. It is this economic relation that determines the subject matter comprised in each juridical act. Footnote 2 Proudhon begins by taking his ideal of justice, of justice éternelle, from the juridical relations that correspond to the production of commodities, Thereby, it may be noted, he proves, to the consolation of all good citizens, that the production of commodities is a form of production as everlasting as justice. Then he turns round and seeks to reform the actual production of commodities, and the actual legal system corresponding thereto in accordance with this ideal. What opinion should we have of a chemist? who, instead of studying the actual laws of the molecular changes in the composition and decomposition of matter, and on that foundation solving definite problems, claimed to regulate the composition and decomposition of matter by means of the eternal ideas of naturalité and affinité. Do we really know any more about usury when we say it contradicts justice éternelle, équité éternelle, mutualité éternelle, and other verités éternelles, than the fathers of the Church did, when they said it was incompatible with grâce éternelle. 
foi éternel, and la volonté éternelle de Dieu. End of footnote. The persons exist for one another merely as representatives of, and therefore as owners of, commodities. In the course of our investigation we shall find, in general, that the characters who appear on the economic stage are but the personifications of the economic relations that exist between them. What chiefly distinguishes a commodity from its owner is the fact that it looks upon every other commodity as but the form of appearance of its own value. A born leveller and a cynic, it is always ready to exchange not only soul but body with any and every other commodity, be the same more repulsive than Maritornus herself. The owner makes up for this lack in the commodity of a sense of the concrete by his own five and more senses. His commodity possesses for himself no immediate use value, otherwise he would not bring it to the market. It has use value for others, but for himself its only direct use value is that of being a depository of exchange value, and consequently a means of exchange. Footnote 3 Quotes, for twofold is the use of every object. The one is peculiar to the object as such, the other is not. As a sandal, which may be worn and is also exchangeable. Both are uses of the sandal, for even he who exchanges the sandal for money or food he is in want of, makes use of the sandal as a sandal, but not in its natural way, for it has not been made for the sake of being exchanged. Close quotes. Aristotle, De Republica, Book 1, Chapter 9. End of footnote. Therefore, he makes up his mind to part with it for commodities whose value in use is of service to him. All commodities are non-use values for their owners, and use values for their non-owners. Consequently, they must all change hands. But this change of hands is what constitutes their exchange, and the latter puts them in relation with each other as values, and realises them as values. Hence, commodities must be realised as values before they can be realised as use values. On the other hand, they must show that they are use values before they can be realised as values. For the labour spent upon them counts effectively only in so far as it is spent in a form that is useful for others. Whether that labour is useful for others, and its product consequently capable of satisfying the wants of others, can be proved only by the act of exchange. Every owner of a commodity wishes to part with it in exchange only for those commodities whose use value satisfies some want of his. Looked at in this way, exchange is for him simply a private transaction. On the other hand, he desires to realise the value of his commodity, to convert it into any other suitable commodity of equal value irrespective of whether his own commodity has or has not any use value for the owner of the other. 
from this point of view, exchange is for him a social transaction of a general character. But one and the same set of transactions cannot be simultaneously for all owners of commodities, both exclusively private and exclusively social and general. Let us look at the matter a little closer. To the owner of a commodity, every other commodity is, in regard to his own, a particular equivalent, and consequently his own commodity is the universal equivalent for all of the others. But since this applies to every owner, there is in fact no commodity acting as universal equivalent, and the relative value of commodities possesses no general form under which they can be equated as values and have the magnitude of their values compared. So far, therefore, they do not confront each other as commodities, but only as products or use values. In their difficulties, our commodity owners think like Faust, quotes, im anfang war die Tat, close quotes. In the beginning was the deed, from Goethe's Faust. They therefore acted and transacted before they thought. Instinctively, they conform to the laws imposed by the nature of commodities. They cannot bring their commodities into relation as values, and therefore as commodities, except by comparing them with some one other commodity as the universal equivalent. That we saw from the analysis of a commodity. But a particular commodity cannot become the universal equivalent except by a social act. The social action, therefore, of all other commodities sets apart the particular commodity in which they all represent their values. Thereby, the bodily form of this commodity becomes the form of the socially recognised universal equivalent. To be the universal equivalent becomes, by this social process, the specific function of the commodity thus excluded by the rest. Thus it becomes money. Quotes, These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Revelations 17.13 And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Revelations 13, 17 from the Apocalypse. Money is a crystal, formed of necessity in the course of the exchanges, whereby different products of labour are practically equated to one another, and thus by practice converted into commodities. The historical progress and extension of exchanges develops the contrast, latent in commodities, between use-value and value. The necessity for giving an external expression to this contrast for the purposes of commercial intercourse urges on the establishment of an independent form of value, and finds no rest until it is once for all satisfied by the differentiation of commodities into commodities and money. At the same rate, then, as the conversion of products into commodities is being accomplished, so also is the conversion of one special commodity 
into money. Footnote 4. From this we may form an estimate of the shrewdness of the petit bourgeois socialism which, while perpetuating the production of commodities, aims at abolishing the antagonism between money and commodities, and consequently, since money exists only by virtue of this antagonism, at abolishing money itself. We might just as well try to retain Catholicism without the Pope. For more on this point, see my work A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, page 61 and following. End of footnote. The direct barter of products attains the elementary form of the relative expression of value in one respect but not in another. That form is X of commodity A equals Y of commodity B. The form of direct barter is X of use value A is equivalent of Y of use value B. Footnote 5. So long as instead of two distinct use values being exchanged, a chaotic mass of articles are offered as the equivalent of a single article, which is often the case with savages, even the direct barter of products is in its first infancy. End of footnote. The articles A and B in this case are not as yet commodities but become so only by the act of barter. The first step made by an object of utility towards acquiring exchange value is when it forms a non-use value for its owner. And that happens when it forms a superfluous portion of some article required for his immediate wants. Objects in themselves are external to man and consequently alienable by him. In order that this alienation may be reciprocal, it is only necessary for men, by a tacit understanding, to treat each other as private owners of those alienable objects, and by implication as independent individuals. But such a state of reciprocal independence has no existence in a primitive society based on property in common whether such society takes the form of a patriarchal family, an ancient Indian community, or a Peruvian Inca state. The exchange of commodities, therefore, first begins on the boundaries of such communities, at their points of contact with other similar communities, or with members of the latter. So soon, however, as products once become commodities in the external relations of a community, they also, by reaction, become so in its internal intercourse. The proportions in which they are exchangeable are at first quite a matter of chance. What makes them exchangeable is the mutual desire of their owners to alienate them. Meantime, the need for foreign objects of utility gradually establishes itself. The constant repetition of exchange makes it a normal social act. In the course of time, therefore, some portion at least of the products of labour must be produced with a special view to exchange. From that moment, the distinction becomes firmly established between the utility of an object for the purposes of consumption 
and its utility for the purposes of exchange. Its use value becomes distinguished from its exchange value. On the other hand, the quantitative proportion in which the articles are exchangeable becomes dependent on their production itself. Custom stamps them as values with definite magnitudes. In the direct barter of products, each commodity is directly a means of exchange to its owner and to all other persons an equivalent, but that only in so far as it has use value for them. At this stage, therefore, the articles exchanged do not acquire a value form independent of their own use value or of the individual needs of the exchangers. The necessity for a value form grows with the increasing number and variety of the commodities exchanged. The problem and the means of solution arise simultaneously. Commodity owners never equate their own commodities to those of others and exchange them on a large scale, without different kinds of commodities belonging to different owners being exchangeable for and equated as values to one and the same special article. Such last-mentioned article, by becoming the equivalent of various other commodities, acquires at once, though within narrow limits, the character of a general social equivalent. This character comes and goes with the momentary social acts that called it into life. In turns and transiently it attaches itself first to this and then to that commodity. But with the development of exchange it fixes itself firmly and exclusively to particular sorts of commodities and becomes crystallised by assuming the money form. The particular kind of commodity to which it sticks is at first a matter of accident. Nevertheless, there are two circumstances whose influence is decisive. The money form attaches itself either to the most important articles of exchange from outside, and these in fact are primitive and natural forms in which the exchange value of home products finds expression or else it attaches itself to the object of utility that forms, like cattle, the chief portion of indigenous alienable wealth. Nomad races are the first to develop the money form, because all their worldly goods consist of movable objects and are therefore directly alienable, and because their mode of life by continually bringing them into contact with foreign communities, solicits the exchange of products. Man has often made man himself under the form of slaves serve as the primitive material of money, but has never used land for that purpose. Such an idea could only spring up in a bourgeois society, already well developed. It dates from the last third of the 17th century, and the first attempt to put it in practice on a national scale was made a century afterwards, during the French bourgeois revolution. In proportion as exchange bursts its local bonds, and the value of commodities more and more expands into an embodiment of human labour in the abstract, 
In the same proportion the character of money attaches itself to commodities that are by nature fitted to perform the social function of a universal equivalent. Those commodities are the precious metals. The truth of the proposition that, quotes, although gold and silver are not by nature money, money is by nature gold and silver, close quotes, is shown by the fitness of the physical properties of these metals for the functions of money. Footnote 6. Karl Marx, Loco Citato, page 135, quotes, The metals are by their nature money. Close quotes. Galliani, Della Moneta, in Custodis Collection, Parte Moderna, Book 3. End of footnote. And footnote 7. For further details on this subject, see in my work cited above the chapter on, quotes, the precious metals, close quotes, end of footnote. Up to this point, however, we are acquainted only with one function of money, namely to serve as the form of manifestation of the value of commodities, or as the material in which the magnitudes of their values are socially expressed. An adequate form of manifestation of value a fit embodiment of abstract, undifferentiated, and therefore equal human labour, that material alone can be whose every sample exhibits the same uniform qualities. On the other hand, since the difference between the magnitudes of value is purely quantitative, the money commodity must be susceptible of merely quantitative differences, must therefore be divisible at will, and equally capable of being reunited. Gold and silver possess these properties by nature. The use value of the money commodity becomes twofold. In addition to its special use value as a commodity, gold for instance serving to stop teeth, or to form the raw material of articles of luxury, etc., it acquires a formal use-value, originating in its specific social function. Since all commodities are merely particular equivalents of money, the latter being their universal equivalent, they, with regard to the latter as the universal commodity, play the parts of particular commodities. Footnote 8 Quotes Il danaro e la merce universale. Close quotes. Very loco citato, page 16. End of footnote. We have seen that the money form is but the reflex thrown upon one single commodity of the value relations between all the rest. Footnote 9. Three quotations. Quote. Silver and gold themselves, which we may call by the general name of bullion, are commodities rising and falling in value. Bullion, then, may be reckoned to be of higher value, where the smaller weight will purchase the greater quantity of the product or manufacture of the country. Close quotes. 
from a discourse of the general notions of money, trade and exchanges as they stand in relation to each other. By a Merchant, London, 1695, page 7. Quotes. Silver and gold, coined or uncoined, though they are used for a measure of all other things, are no less a commodity than wine, oil, tobacco, cloth or stuffs. Close quotes. From A Discourse Concerning Trade, and that in particular of the East Indies. London, 1689, page 2. Quotes. The stock and riches of the kingdom cannot properly be confined to money, nor ought gold and silver to be excluded from being merchandise. Close quotes. From The East India Trade, a most profitable trade. London, 1677, page 4. End of footnote. That money is a commodity is therefore a new discovery only for those who, when they analyse it, start from its fully developed shape. The act of exchange gives to the commodity converted into money not its value, but its specific value form. By confounding these two distinct things, some writers have been led to hold that the value of gold and silver is imaginary. Footnote 10 Some quotations Gold and silver have value as metals before they are money. Galliani loco quitato. Locke says The universal consent of mankind gave to silver on account of its qualities which made it suitable for money an imaginary value. Law, on the other hand, how could different nations give an imaginary value to any single thing, or how could this imaginary value have maintained itself? Close quotes. But the following shows how little he himself understood about the matter. Quotes. Silver was exchanged in proportion to the value in use it possessed, consequently in proportion to its real value. By its adoption as money, it received an additional value, une valeur additionnelle, close quotes. Jean Law, Consideration sur le numéraire et le commerce, in E. Der's edition of Economiste Financier du XVIIIe siècle, page 470. End of footnote. The fact that money can in certain functions be replaced by mere symbols of itself gave rise to that other mistaken notion that it is itself a mere symbol. Nevertheless, under this error lurked a presentiment that the money form of an object is not an inseparable part of that object, but is simply the form under which certain social relations manifest themselves. In this sense, every commodity is a symbol since, in so far as it is value, it is only the material envelope of the human labour spent upon it. Footnote 11. Some quotations. Money is there the commodity's symbol, and as a symbol it is attracted by the commodities. Close quotes. 
V de Forbonnet, Elements du Commerce, Nouvelle Edition, Leiden, 1766, Book 2, pages 143 and 155. Quotes. Money is a symbol of a thing and represents it. Close quotes. Montesquieu, Esprit des Lois. Oeuvre, London, 1767, Book 2, page 2. Quotes. Money is not a mere symbol, for it is itself wealth. It does not represent the values, it is their equivalents. Close quotes. Le Trône, Loco Citato, page 910. Quotes. The notion of value contemplates the valuable article as a mere symbol. The article counts not for what it is, but for what it is worth. Close quotes. Hegel, Logo Citato, page 100. Lawyers started long before economists the idea that money is a mere symbol and that the value of the precious metals is purely imaginary. This they did in the psychophantic service of the crowned heads, supporting the right of the latter to debase the coinage during the whole of the Middle Ages by the traditions of the Roman Empire and the conceptions of money to be found in the Pandects. An apt scholar of theirs, Philip of Valois, in a decree of 1346, said, quotes, Let no one call into question that the trade, the composition, the supply and the power of issuing ordinances on the currency belongs exclusively to us and to our royal majesty, to fix such a rate and at such price as it shall please us and seem good to us. Close quotes. It was a maxim of the Roman law that the value of money was fixed by decree of the emperor. It was expressly forbidden to treat money as a commodity. Quotes, However, it shall not be lawful to anyone for to buy money, for as it was created for public use, it is not permissible for it to be a commodity. Close quotes. Some good work on this question has been done by G. F. Pagnini. Saggio sopra il giusto pregio della cosa, 1751. Custodi, parte moderna, book two. In the second part of his work, Pagnini directs his polemics especially against the lawyers. End of footnote. But if it be declared that the social characters assumed by objects or the material forms assumed by the social qualities of labour under the regime of a definite mode of production, are mere symbols, it is in the same breath also declared that these characteristics are arbitrary fictions, sanctioned by the so-called universal consent of mankind. This suited the mode of explanation in favour during the 18th century. Unable to account for the origin of the puzzling forms assumed by the social relations between man and man, people sought to denude them of their strange appearance by ascribing to them a conventional origin. It has already been remarked above that the equivalent form of a commodity does not imply the determination of the magnitude of its value. Therefore, although we may be aware that gold is money, 
and consequently directly exchangeable for all other commodities. Yet that fact by no means tells us how much ten pounds, for instance, of gold is worth. Money, like every other commodity, cannot express the magnitude of its value, except relatively in other commodities. This value is determined by the labour time required for its production, and is expressed by the quantity of any other commodity that costs the same amount of labour time. Footnote 12 Quotes If a man can bring to London an ounce of silver out of the earth in Peru, in the same time that he can produce a bushel of corn, then the one is the natural price of the other. Now, if by reason of new or more easier mines, a man can procure two ounces of silver as easily as he formerly did one, the corn will be as cheap at ten shillings the bushel as it was before at five shillings. Caeteris paribus. Close quotes. William Petty, A Treatise of Taxes and Contributions, London, 1667, page 32. End of footnote. Such quantitative determination of its relative value takes place at the source of its production by means of barter. When it steps into circulation as money, its value is already given. In the last decades of the 17th century, it had already been shown that money is a commodity. But this step marks only the infancy of the analysis. The difficulty lies not in comprehending that money is a commodity, but in discovering how, why, and by what means a commodity becomes money. Footnote 13 The learned Professor Rocher, after first informing us that, quotes, the false definitions of money may be divided into two main groups, those which make it more and those which make it less than a commodity, close quotes, gives us a long and very mixed catalogue of works on the nature of money, from which it appears that he has not the remotest idea of the real history of the theory. And then he moralises thus, quotes, for the rest, it is not to be denied that most of the later economists do not bear sufficiently in mind the peculiarities that distinguish money from all other commodities. It is then, after all, either more or less than a commodity. Continue the quote. So far, the semi-mercantilist reaction of Ganil is not altogether without foundation. Close quotes. From Wilhelm Roscher, Die Grundlagen der National Economie, 3rd edition, 1858, pages 207-210. More? Less? Not sufficiently? So far? Not altogether? What clearness and precision of ideas and language! and such eclectic professorial twaddle is modestly baptised by Mr. Rocher, quotes, 
the anatomico-physiological method, close quotes, of political economy. One discovery, however, he must have credit for, namely that money is, quotes, a pleasant commodity, end of footnote. We have already seen from the most elementary expression of value, X commodity A is Y commodity B, that the object in which the magnitude of the value of another object is represented appears to have the equivalent form independently of this relation as a social property given to it by nature. We followed up this false appearance to its final establishment which is complete so soon as the universal equivalent form becomes identified with the bodily form of a particular commodity, and thus crystallised into the money form. What appears to happen is not that gold becomes money in consequence of all other commodities expressing their values in it, but, on the contrary, that all other commodities universally express their values in gold because it is money. The intermediate steps of the process vanish in the result and leave no trace behind. Commodities find their own value already completely represented, without any initiative on their part, in another commodity, existing in company with them. These objects gold and silver, just as they come out of the bowels of the earth, are forthwith the direct incarnation of all human labour, hence the magic of money. In the form of society now under consideration, the behaviour of men in the social process of production is purely atomic. Hence, their relations to each other in production assume a material character independent of their control and conscious individual action. These facts manifest themselves at first by products as a general rule taking the form of commodities. We have seen how the progressive development of a society of commodity producers stamps one privileged commodity with the character of money. Hence, the riddle presented by money is but the riddle presented by commodities, only it now strikes us in its most glaring form. End of Part 1, Chapter 2